Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my show that tries to bring a uniquely rational perspective to important issues facing our society today. Today's guest is Dr. Wilford Riley. Wilford is a leading voice in challenging popular mainstream narratives with an empirical analysis of the data that exposes the truth about some of America's most controversial topics. Wilford and I have an important conversation about what we're witnessing in the United States, including the truly divisive narratives about race in this country that have frankly led to a lack of civility among our fellow Americans. And where do we go from here to unify our nation and succeed as a heterogeneous society? Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. Today's guest, I'm delighted to say, is Dr. Wilford Riley, author, researcher, and political science professor, an important voice in challenging many of the popular and, frankly, destructive mainstream narratives with actual data, uh, known for being unafraid to expose the truth about America's most controversial topics. Wilford is an assistant professor of political science within the School of Criminal Justice and political science at Kentucky State University, one of our nation's historically black colleges, located in Frankfort, Kentucky, situated between Louisville and Lexington. He's also an advisor to FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Like me, he's a product of Chicago. Uh, he holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University and a JD from the University of Illinois College of Law. He's a prolific author. Uh, some of his books include Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, and The $50 Million Question. At Kentucky State, Dr. Riley's research has focused on international relations, prevention of war, and particularly modern American race relations and the use of modern quantitative methods to test these so-called sacred cow theories, such as the notions of white privilege, the Black Lives Matter movement, and even the idea that we are actually in a race war in America. His work has been featured in a variety of outlets, including Academic Questions, Commentary Magazine, Quillette, USA Today, and several other publications. Welcome, Wilford. Great to be here. Thanks for coming on and squeezing us into your busy schedule. There's a lot of things to talk about, all of which are, of course, super important. I'd like to just dive right in and talk about racism in America. Uh, and I'll start this way. You note that the definition of racism has changed uh, over the years to become something like perhaps the explanation for all outcome differences. Can you uh, give us the explanation of what your thoughts are on this? Sure. I mean, racism to the U.S. Uh, liberal through radical left often seems to mean something like karma in that it's the univariate explanation that's provided that's acceptable in kind of upper middle class life for any difference in performance between any two ethnic groups. And it, it's worth breaking down how different this is from kind of the historical norm. So racism is a racial, a, a geno-ethnic version of what in political science we call tribalism. So essentially, traditionally, racism has simply meant disliking someone because of their race. 
I'm sure I could have put a little bit of an academic gloss on that and complicated it up, but that's that's essentially what racism is. And racism in practice is discrimination, generally. So if you are a hiring manager and you dislike blacks or Irishmen or something like this, and you refuse to onboard people of that group, you're a bigot and you're engaging in discrimination. That's what racism has almost always meant. That's what it means to most people. When you say Bill is a racist, you mean Bill doesn't like members of Group X. When you look at modern writers like uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Robin DiAngelo, author of White Fragility, Nice Racism, so on, when they use the term racism, they mean something very different. And if I, to the extent that I can define it, what they're saying is that racism is any system that produces disparities in outcome between any two racial groups. That's what Dr. Kendi pretty openly means by that term. And his argument is that there are really only two possible explanations for large-scale group differences. One of them is what he frankly calls inferiority. Um, I mean, the most logical read of that would be genetic inferiority. There's something wrong with one of the groups. He'll generally say there's something wrong with black people in this scenario. And the other explanation would be some form of bigotry, no matter how subtle, no matter how difficult to find in systems somewhere. So racism in the contemporary sense very often means anything that produces these disparities. I don't, I don't want to hammer that to death too much, but that's what people mean when they're saying the SAT is racist. The application of standardized tests is racist. The housing market is racist. There's systemic racism out there that no one can find. What they mean is that when you look at something like deaths during geriatric pregnancy, I mean, pretty much anything, you'll find differences between whites, blacks, and Hispanics very often. Right. The, the it seems. Pro- oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah. I mean, in, in a sense or two, the problem with this is that there are a lot of differences between really large ethnic populations that don't have anything to do with genes or races. I mean, the the classic cliche example used in the social sciences is that at least at mode, the average black guy is twenty seven, the average white male is fifty eight. So, in order to attribute some kind of group gap to bigotry. You'd actually have to adjust for a whole bunch of things, cultural variables like study time, regional variables, you know, the impacts of historical racism that no longer exists. Um, Even what I call stochastic factors, which is sort of luck based stuff like the the age uh, variable that I, I just provided. So unless you do that, the the argument that if you see a difference between blacks and whites, you're seeing bigotry is is almost silly. You see differences sure. between Asians and Nigerians and whites. They just go in the other direction. Yes. I mean, I think I, I have uh, also seen this in my own specific area of healthcare policy where the the simplest thing to do is to bandy about these uh, sort of comparison statistics without really thinking them through. And I think it's very, if nothing else, even if you ascribe good motivation to using these kinds of comparisons, it's very poor scholarship. Uh, you know, when you look at life expectancy of countries, uh, and this is so because this is my area of health policy, there are dozens of factors that go into life expectancy <clears throat> that differ between countries, including, for instance, in the United States, <clears throat> you know, a large part of uh, death cause has nothing to do with health care. It has to do with homicides and suicides that are very different in the United States and much higher and when you when you have people die who are young, you've effectively had more significant change to overall life expectancy 
than you do that are uh, when you're talking about factors that are related to medical care, which are typically an older group. So, yeah, there's been a it, it, it's almost like uh, there's a willful use of poor scholarship. I mean, I'd like to look at a few specific instances. You've written several books. One of your books is entitled Hate Crime Hoaxes, looking at the data versus what I would call the narrative. Uh, and you talk about these things in, in many ways, including not just the hate crime data, the idea of racist police, the questions of are women massively suppressed in the United States these days, uh, the concept of cultural appropriation, uh, campus rape statistics. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the data on a couple of those. Sure. I mean, so first, uh, kind of getting back to the point you just raised. Yeah. Now, there's actually an interesting question about whether this stuff is intentionally disingenuous or whether some of the people we're discussing, like perhaps the good Dr. Kendi, with no insult intended, just aren't the best methodologists possible. I'm, I'm genuinely curious about that when it comes to some of this stuff. But yeah, I mean, generally what you see with the, the healthcare claims you're describing, for example, is just a univariate allegation of racism. So someone will note that there's a difference, for example, in maternal deaths during geriatric pregnancy. It could be literally anything. And they will point out that blacks very often do worse than whites against this metric. And they will just basically say that this is racist. This is evidence of racism. So throughout all this, you see the definition that, you know, disparities equal discrimination, as Triple OG Tom Soul once put it. Um, the reality is that there, there are two things that come into play when I've looked at the healthcare literature regarding almost all these claims. First of all, the thing that is being studied almost always, U.S. docs are actually doing a pretty good job, occurs at very, very low levels. So, I mean, you're doing this sort of backwards factor analysis. I mean, if you're arguing that there are more African-American female deaths during pregnancy than white ones, you're comparing, you know, a fourth of a percent to an eighth of a percent or something like that. You're not finding epidemic racism in the first place ever there's no indication of that among Caucasian doctors, African-American doctors. So that that's sure. an important point to make. But secondarily, you're also not adjusting for anything. I mean, so obesity is much higher in the African-American community. Absolutely. Yes. And it's really hard to argue that an abundance of good food represents racism as we've traditionally defined it. I mean, so I mean, this this came into play, if I may interrupt, in, in COVID, uh, where uh, specifically that illness the biggest risk factors are related to obesity. Besides age, for COVID death, you have obesity and diabetes. And when you have a population where severe obesity is 600 times more common in black Americans than in white Americans, and uh, thousands of times more common than in Asian Americans, there's no, there's no puzzle to why a lot of people died with COVID who were black, statistically, as a group. Uh, you're right, but the the definition seems to want to be uh, the conclusion is made in advance for a lot of these people. It seems that it must be racism, and let's uh, let's just explain as the knee jerk. That's the conclusion. Yes, that's correct. Uh, generally, what happens if you debate one of these guys is that if you start doing so, for example, income differences between blacks and whites essentially vanish if you adjust for three things. One is age. One is test scores. One is region of the country. And that last one is as banally simplistic as age is. I mean, about 50% of the black and Latino population lives in the South and Southwest, respectively, 
where wages are much lower. So if you're arguing that a difference in household income between blacks or Mexican-Americans and whites indicates prejudice, first you have to adjust so that you're comparing similar cities in the same state. Otherwise, I mean, if you're taking someone at median, that might very well be a white guy in Manhattan who's 50 who you're matching up against a you know, solid blue-collar regular black guy who's 30 in Meridian, Mississippi. And obviously the Caucasian man in that situation or woman is going to have a higher annual average income. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same thing with what you're describing. But oh, getting back to the, the point here, though, generally, if you're debating one of these people, what they'll say is that every other factor you bring up is evidence of racism. It really, I'm not the first by any means, uh, nor are you brilliant, though we both may be, but to note that there's the wokeness, quote unquote, very much resembles religion. There are almost direct parallels. Original sin is privilege and so on. But one of the parallels is that nothing cannot be the fault of the single devil variable. So, I mean, if I were to say obesity obviously explains the gap between black and white um, non-senior fatalities during COVID, and it does. I mean, I think we've, we've both read the few major papers on this. It's just obvious it does. Someone would then say, well, obesity itself, despite my, my line earlier, is evidence of racism due to historical oppression. Black Americans have a lower level of cooking skills. It's an argument I find ridiculously racist. But, um, you know, there are there are fewer stores in black neighborhoods and so on down the line. And this can go on for quite a while. Uh, in my most recent debate, someone made the fewer stores argument. I pointed out, well, that's because of crime. You know, I live in Appalachia. There are very few mainstream supermarkets in poor white neighborhoods. You're not going to build your lovely little business where someone's going to set it on fire. And the argument in response to what I thought was a winning point was crime is a result of racism. So this can really go on and on and on. I mean, you can then counter, well, why is there so little crime in Asian and Nigerian communities? The circle goes around. But the basic idea is that until we get rid of the root cause variable of racism, and maybe poverty sometimes is thrown in there as the jockey on the back of the big horse, it, it makes almost no sense to do anything. So when you see a disparity in health outcomes, you don't tell black women or southern white women to lose weight. You focus on racism because racism is the ultimate cause of obesity. So that's the argument that's made. I'm obviously not agreeing with this. Sure. So, yeah. The I mean, and I think what we've seen uh, recently and and frankly, increasingly uh, is talking about obesity. And I think this really hits home for me because obesity is the number one public health threat in the United States. There is no question about that. The second one being Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. But if you look at obesity, the two most recent really sinful uh, societal modes, in my view, are that obesity has become something that we should celebrate almost. We should idolize. We've seen a proliferation of advertising and marketing in fashion that somehow makes obese women something to uh, celebrate uh, rather than understanding and saying the honest truth, which is that it's bad to be fat. I mean, I just think it's it's really a sin to convince in a, a populations, not that we shouldn't accept people for who they are, but the goal should be not to, the goal should be to avoid obesity for health reasons. It has nothing to do, and to to pretend like it's something to celebrate is a very sad commentary on our culture, uh, driven by many factors, uh, 
And then most recently, we saw that the uh, there's been scientific uh, push for saying that body mass index calculations are racist. Uh, and uh, again, undermining the obvious and scientifically thoroughly valid data showing that being obese is bad for your health. I think it's very sad. And again, uh, whether intended to be a good, a quote unquote good or not, this is very harmful to the public good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's well said. I think it's obviously true. Um, you know, to some extent right now, as you get wokeness again, making its way through institutions that we might not have expected 10 years ago, like medical schools, um, it's colleges of STEM. I mean, you're starting to get a lot of out and out rejection of mainstream obvious science. So a fairly good friend of mine is the biologist Colin Wright, and he runs a blog called Reality's Last Stand, which is now at that point where I would assume it's probably bringing in six figures a year in donations. It publishes major articles. I mean, I've written for Reality's Last Stand. But the entire point of, you know, the enterprise is pointing out that there are two human sexes. And it's almost absurd that that exists to some extent. But I mean, you're not... The controversy. Yes. Yes, that the the controversy about whether they're males and females. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think anyone who's been to a on a second date or to a varsity tryout knows that there are pretty obvious differences. You can see them. You know, you walk by people on the street, you can tell what sex they are generally. But I mean, you're starting to see, uh, for example, Scientific American ran an article. This was a frontispiece article, it was a major piece called something like the sex binary. It's not as simple as you think. So, I mean, when people have devout religious beliefs, they can cling to ideas like the sun revolves around the earth for a really long time. And with obesity, I, I think this is one of the more risk-filled arenas where you're seeing this. But yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the BMI, body mass index, was exactly what we're talking about. According to the standard body mass index, more black women and Hispanic men proportionately than you would expect were classified as fat or obese. So the argument was that there had to be something racist about the index. It was designed to measure the healthy proportions for a Caucasian body. And so the index should be junked. Doctors should use more individually, personally relevant techniques when it comes to assessing whether people are unhealthy. But, you know, the elephant in the room with all this is that there's another obvious explanation for why black women and Hispanic men were classified as more likely to be overweight, and that is that they were more likely to be overweight. And that's you, right. Yes. And you you find the same just bog standard obvious counterpoints very often when you look at this stuff. Why are there more police in black neighborhoods? Well, because on average, there's a higher rate of crime in black neighborhoods and so on down the line. So, I mean, for those watching it, it really is as simple as it sounds. I mean, of course, the fact that the index, quote unquote, has a disproportionate effect on black people doesn't mean that BMI is useless or that it's racist. The argument is that it must be because it has a disproportionate impact on black people. And yeah. And it, the problem here is that, you know, and, and it's really not just a philosophical argument or something that is offensive. That That has nothing to do with BMI. This is a, a medical risk factor. I mean, these are people that have a higher rate of hypertension, high blood pressure, of diabetes, of certain cancers, even of Alzheimer's, uh, obesity is is one of the many risk factors. And so, uh, you know, I just think uh, 
somehow we have become or we're in danger of becoming a society where we care about words more than reality. And I don't care what the definition uh, of BMI, uh, the basis of it is sort of irrelevant when you look at the outcomes. It says it all. When you have coronary artery disease, heart attacks, when you have strokes, when you have hypertension, diabetes, every major disease and cancer, uh, you know, a, a significant percentage of cancer deaths are due, are due to correlations with lifestyle diseases, and one of those is obesity. So I just think, uh, you know, uh, in the interest of making people feel better about themselves, we're frank, uh, they're killing people. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say that in, in a sort of, uh, in a non-religious way or a religious way, it's a sin to delude people into thinking that being obese is good or it's simply uh, a, a matter of being called something that's discriminatory. I want to shift a little bit into something that's really uh, one of your quotes. You, you're quoted as saying, today's biggest threat may well be the ceaseless promotion by activists and media figures of a false narrative of constant conflict. Uh, I mean, I think this is really very, very insightful, and I'd like you to like you to talk about that. Uh, and maybe you're, uh, you know, who is profiting from making this overwhelming uh, sort of hysteria that everyone's a victim and that there's a a real overstatement of persecution in the United States. Yeah. So that quote, that's now this gets really into the core of my research and writing work. And that quote is still something I strongly believe. But yeah, for I believe commentary, I said that a bigger danger to the USA than actual racial conflict by this point. I mean, by this point, only if you look at something like willingness to engage in an interracial marriage, I mean, only about six to eight percent of whites, 10 percent of blacks test as bigots, a bigger threat than those figures might be off by a percentage point or so each year. But I mean, a bigger threat than that is the perception of constant racial conflict and more broadly of constant danger around every street corner. And this this kind of latent terror about bullshit is one of the big features of American life. And it's a big problem. So, I mean, recently I saw some of the most astonishing data, if you believe conventional media storylines, at least that I have in a while. Uh, but I believe Pew measured attitudes toward American race relations. And they started for this poll in kind of that colorblind, you know, Jordan and Bird era, 1995, 96 through 2000. And they went through today. I believe they went through 2022. So after George Floyd. And what they found at the start of this period was that 70 percent of whites and almost 70 percent of blacks thought race relations were quite good. The civil rights movement was 30, 40 years in the past. Most of these people were polled in the north anyway. And black unemployment rate well below 10 percent. There, there weren't any major racial problems that people were talking about in 1999. Now, that doesn't mean the OJ trial didn't occur or something, but the constant obsessive focus on race simply wasn't there. And if you move to the end of the graphic, that changed dramatically. Um, as I recall, it was 33 percent of blacks, 35 percent of whites. Again, that might be off by a point or two, but now thought race relations were good. So during this entire era of, quote unquote, racial reckoning, uh, what Zach Goldberg calls the Great Awakening, post-2012, the kind of stuff we've been seeing in the Times and the Post, what Tribune, where I live in Chicago or lived in Chicago, 
But during this entire era of increased focus on race, we've seen race relations sink to one of their lowest points in all of recorded history. And right. it's impossible not to link this to some of the narratives that are out there. I mean, so the opening uh, chapter of the book you mentioned earlier, Taboo, looks at the claims of the Black Lives Matter movement. And now a couple of years down the road, when this is no longer sort of fashionable as a cause, we might be trying to memory hole what some of those were. But I mean, it's worth remembering, Cherno Biko, uh, one of their activists, went on primetime Fox News and said that roughly every day, a totally innocent black man is, his words, murdered by the police. I believe unarmed was also a part of that. Uh, Benjamin Crump, who's one of the country's most respected attorneys, whatever that's worth, but I mean, wrote an entire book called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. And his argument was that police violence, vigilante violence, all of this combined results in, I think, thousands, tens of thousands would be a fair estimate of his tolls of black deaths annually. And this is this is a best-selling book. You can find this on Amazon. It has more reviews than my book. Um, but it's open season, the legalized genocide of colored people. I don't, I don't know why I'm selling this guy's book for him, but it's just this was this was a major product that was out there. So people heard right. this for years. And I mean, you, you know this, most of the audience probably knows this, but the actual number of unarmed black men that are killed by police in a typical year is around 15. Um, following the George Floyd riots and so on, it actually dipped a little bit. So, I mean, the mo last year I've seen on record, it was 11. But that's what we're actually talking about. I mean... These claims by very prominent people that there's a near race war going on stand in complete contrast to the reality of policing or to the reality of interracial conflict, which is those 15 guys. And so it's not just incorrect, of course. It's also extraordinarily harmful. It yep. shows a couple of things. Number one, the impact of the constant media mantra on regular people, because people... Not everybody has the time or the interest that you or I do in looking at the actual data, digging up the data, number one. Number two, the, the megaphone provided to the race, uh, some people call them race hustlers, but the, the narrative that they want to push is given the platform. And so people are subjected to this, as you know, and it's very impactful because people tend to believe what they hear on news stations and in the media and in the, you know, in the national, nationally recognized newspapers. So the question is, uh, we know it's harmful. We know it's a lie by the data, a lot of this stuff. Uh, the question is, who's profiting from this? Is it just these individuals or is it more than that? And, and I sort of think this has been going on for a while. I mean, you and I are both from Chicago uh, original, uh, you know, uh, racial protests and a lot of civil rights movements came out of there. People like Jesse Jackson when I was a kid. Uh, you know, we see, and, and Obama actually has a tie to Chicago. Uh, but, you know, who who is profiting from this and why why is it pushed on the American public when it's false? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. There actually, there are two pieces there. So first, I mean, when you said this stuff is very harmful, it's worth one line there. Yes, people absolutely do believe what they hear in mass media. Now, on kind of the smart right, uh, what used to be called the intellectual dark web, you're seeing a, a pretty strong backlash against this, where people are starting to look up academic journal articles on their own or just go to the library, debate these topics on Twitter, that kind of thing. And I, I actually think that's very good for all the criticism of, you know, doing your own research, quote unquote. But absolutely I mean, yes i agree with that 
Yeah, and I, I think under under COVID, this this is interesting because sort of the general quant community, like grad students and junior professors on my page, I'm sure many doctors of your acquaintance to to a higher degree. But the people that I was just talking to on a daily basis were much more often accurate than the government. Um, <laughs> you could simply look at things like very early on in the pandemic, it became obvious that frontline workers were not dying in massive numbers if they were under a certain age mark. So you could estimate what the highest risk group for COVID would be. One of my friends actually wrote a paper doing exactly this. You could look at what the probable IFR was. You could assume that the cases that were known to the government at the very beginning, they were producing these estimated CFRs of 4 and 5%, were not all the cases of people with COVID-19. It was, it was very simple to some Yes, extent. the stuff is not that complicated. I totally agree. And uh, I do agree with having some optimism that people are waking up to the fact that we must become critical thinkers on our own. Uh, if for no other reason than the people who were the so-called expert class have destroyed their own credibility by either lying or denying obvious uh, facts or being illogical. It just doesn't even pass common sense. But here we have a social uh, a social really division that has been, that has been created. I, I, I don't think I, I I'm exaggerating when I say that when I was a kid, okay, I'm from a, a, a poor, white family, uh, lower lower middle class or upper lower class. I don't know how you would describe it. Uh, but, uh, you know, race wasn't a big issue uh, when I was a little kid. We didn't think of race as a knee-jerk explanation for anything. Now, I was raised in a very liberal home, socially very, very liberal home. Maybe it was my own upbringing. But I, I just, we were raised, I was raised, I'm older than you, in the era where the the vision of a colorblind society, the Martin Luther King Jr. vision, was you know was was obvious and desirable, no one in my in my experience talks about that anymore. I mean, are are we ever going to? What do you think? Are we going to go back toward that? And you know, uh, I I sort of I'm very interested in what you tell your students at a place like Kentucky State. You know, we, we saw Joe Biden, President Biden, give an address at Howard, I think it was, talking about how white supremacy is the biggest problem the country faces. And, uh, you know, I just, that doesn't pass anyone's common sense, yet it's a repeated mantra over and over again. I wonder what's going on from your experience at Kentucky State and, and your your position, not just how you how you talk to your students, but what you perceive as your what your students are thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, I would agree that, well, there, there are quite a few things there. First, I would agree we're going to have to move back to a colorblind vision for society or there are going to be some very negative consequences down road. But kind of like in order, in sequence, um, first, like I, I agree. And I, I think I said this initially, that it's a good thing people starting to do their own research, quote unquote. But you're right that most people aren't. I mean, the statistical majority of people are not. So I, I was going to add a but there. Um, <laughs> you frequently find when you look at the literature and stats that people believe crazy things because of media panic campaigns. So, I mean, my favorite example is I'm not going to run through the whole study as I sometimes do during speeches. But Skeptic Research Center found out a couple of years ago that something like 15 percent of all liberals believe that the average number of black men killed by the police in a year unarmed is about 10,000. Um. 35%, that's additional, believe it's over 1,000. It's about 1,000 or a little more. 
eight percent. I believe it's more than ten thousand. To put this in context, there are only twenty thousand murders a year, and while we're overrepresented, only about half of them involve blacks. So the typical liberal American perception, I believe this was urban blacks and urban whites, is that there are as many black men murdered by the police in a year as there are murders in a year. So that that's an example of the nonsense that will be a part of your brain, a part of who you are as a thinking person, if you just unconsciously consume this stuff. Another example from your field, the average upper middle class woman thinks that 10% of the population died of COVID. That's actually a, I, I used that at an event that we uh, we both spoke at, and that's a, that's a, as of a year and a half ago, I believe. But uh, Kex TC, one of the big European consultancies, polled people and got that result. What percent of the U.S. Po- percentage of the U.S. population would you say has, has died, has expired during the COVID-19 pandemic? And among a sample that slanted relatively wealthy, as I recall, certainly slanted relatively female, the average response was 9%. 9% of our countrymen are dead. Now, again, mm-hmm. there's an element of innumeracy to that. I mean, if that were actually true, you know, there would be the average morgue holds about eight people in a city this size of mine. I mean, there'd be bodies stacked on street corners. And cooling trucks, you know, pushed in to help from the butcher. I mean, be a hideous business. But that is what people think. Uh, I guess the point two, following that, who benefits from this qui bono? Um, you already listed a number of these people. There are massive NGOs that have existed since the 1960s. Uh, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push Coalition is one of the most obvious examples that are focused specifically on bringing in seven, eight figures worth of donations in a year to fight racism. For this to happen, it is essential that there be racism in kind of the old school sense of that term. If there is not, it might be necessary that some be created, which gets back to another book of mine. But be, even beyond that, I mean, there, obviously there's an interest on the part of any media company in getting clicks leading to the site, getting eyeballs on the screen. Conflict, especially racial conflict, is one of the things that really draws viewers. That's unfortunately well known in social science, and that's why you constantly see these sort of white guy on black guy, black guy on white guy videos massively trending on social media, a police mm-hmm. on any young male. And social media, of course, is another set of enterprise companies that are benefiting from this. I mean, obviously, many people have not just alleged, but noted that your goal, if you ran one of these companies, would be constant dopamine hitting. So people keep going back to the site. Something's frightening them something stimulating them. You want to see how many likes your frightening or stimulating post got. So all of these people benefit from an unstable, terrified populace. That's before we even get into pharma and, and so on down the line. Now, what I tell my students or what I what I see from my students, what I see is normal young people, you know, as unformed and intelligent and so on as college kids always have been, probably more focused on, you know, hooking up and what who's playing in town this weekend and so on than you know, the, the ins and outs of philosophy for at least some classes, you know, those on Wednesday yeah, and Friday. But I mean, that's reassuring, by the way, to hear that uh, there's some normalcy going on. Yeah. I mean, at, at a you know, solid state school in Kentucky, people don't spend most of the day protesting, you know, making signs opposing the, you know, Uyghur genocide in China, which is, of course, something that should be stopped. But no, there's the, there's a great deal of just normal social life. But what I do see from them, and this is something that I think on the intelligent right or center we act absolutely need to focus on, and for want of a better word, exploit. What I do see from them is very often kind of a sense of being unformed. Like, many many young people have only heard half of the story, for example. So when I assign fairly basic 
thinkers, if you're coming from the conservative side of the spectrum, like Thomas Sowell or Milton Friedman, or for that matter, Aristotle in a class, people will very often say that that brother, that person was extremely intelligent. Why have I never heard this before? So that's one of the things you notice that almost all input throughout the modern secondary school system, coming at them from the media, so on down the line, curriculum supplements has been from kind of one side of the spectrum politically and socially. Absolutely. And I think this is really a crucial fact uh, for the non-leftist really? to understand is that for decades, these this whole generation has been brought up hearing one view of the world. Uh, and that view is not necessarily reality-based. Uh, you know, it brings also another point that I like to make is that when people are older, everyone has strident opinions, even college students. But the difference is young people in that college age bracket are actually open to learning. Whereas people, as you get older, I think it's very difficult to break into somebody with any kind of new thinking. So it's reassuring that your students are turned on uh, to that. And I have the same sort of uh, experience at Stanford. Uh, what do you think about how, if you can generalize, which probably uh, it's it's not really legitimate, but uh, what do you think about any generality or observation you can make about how race and racism in America is viewed at by your students? Uh, is this and and do they do they have the sort of uh, the vitriol that that we seem to think uh, is is throughout the country? What what are they thinking when they when they contemplate that or ch- are challenged by it or even what when they hear? from the president of the United States that the biggest problem in the country is white supremacy? Well, I I think that for most of them, there is a distinction that you see pretty often in political science, which is between the personal and the national. So, I mean, there are a number of studies where parents are asked what their view is of American education from the Department of Education on down. And most middle class or upper class parents really are aware of the national SAT scores, the national report card. And they say, well, national education is is very bad. And they list a, a series of reasons why this might be. Then you ask them what they think of their school, where these days, you know, little Jimmy and Jenny are almost certainly getting pretty much A's and B's. And the response is that their school is is doing great. It's doing a fair job, given the unique problems in their neighborhood and so on down the line. And I see pretty much the same thing with my students. So at the individual level, like I said, very few white or black Americans are racist. And it's important to reemphasize that. I mean, very few people in terms of a basic metric for racism used around the world, like would you mind neighbors of another caste, if you will, another race, another ethnic group. The the percentage of people that say, yes, I would to that is very consistently under 10 percent in the United States. So on. On a day-to-day level, most of my students don't feel that their peers of a different race are racist. Um, I mean, the rate of interracial dating in a historically black college in Appalachia, 30, 40 percent. I mean, so in practice, if you live in a mid-sized city and you play basketball or golf or something, it would be virtually impossible to spend your day in a monoracial bubble. And most of the kids are fine. Most of them are socially normal, comfortable in mixed dinner parties, that kind of thing. Now, at the national level, though, all of them believe the conventional narrative, at least till they go through a few of my classes and some of them taught by other heterodox professors and they start look, learning statistical methodology, so on down the line. Um, I'm pretty sure if you asked the typical black or white liberal KSU or UK student, you know, is the USA to some extent a white supremacist country? They would, they would say yes. The yes rate to that would probably be 
well over 60%. I don't don't want to just wildly speculate. Mm-hmm. But, and that's that's because of what we both kind of agreed on, which is the the control of discourse to use uh, Marcuse's term by one ideological block within the conversation. So I mean most people have heard of the the old Pew 2004 study where national news media reporters were asked their political inclinations and 7% of them were conservative. And as I <laughs> recall that included libertarians. So that that's pretty standard. If you watch the mainstream national media other than maybe Fox, almost everyone you're hearing talk is going to be a Marxist, a leftist, a liberal or a left-leaning moderate. So I mean those are the people not trying to invoke paranoia here, the thing I hate but those are the people that are infusing these ideas in your kid. I mean, if you're going to a big city public school, even a standard woke prep or day school these days, if you're watching mainstream television, CNN, I mean, this is this is what you're hearing. So the baseline default and the right needs to do a better job of creating culture. Or as you said, the non-left needs to do a better job of creating culture. But the baseline default of almost every college student I've ever met, unless they're in the college Republicans or something, is what I would think of as kind of standard city liberalism. If you yes, ask, I some, agree with that. If you yeah, if, if you ask someone their take on abortion, they would say my body, my choice. And it's just the other arguments haven't been heard. Last line on this, but I mean, I, abortion's not an issue I focus a lot on. But whenever anyone says that, I say, well, aren't there two bodies involved? Something like this, we're in an ethics class, and people are unable to respond to the argument. And there are a whole bunch of responses. Well. My one is almost parasitical on mine until point X. So, I, but people are simply unable to respond because they haven't heard the argument. So, getting, they haven't heard it and they haven't been confronted with thinking about it. Yeah, and same thing with anything. I mean, are there objective moral standards? Almost every student would say no. Well, are there rules that in every situation would produce better outcomes than other rules? Yeah, I'm not the most conventionally moral guy myself, probably. But I mean, when you ask that question, which is the argument for laws and for civilization. Again, there's sort of a puzzled response like, well, but I want to do what I want to do. And it's like, well, so does everyone, because we're born as natural savages. I mean, that that doesn't mean that you don't implement some rules that most societies have that you're that you're supposed to follow. Well, successful societies do. That's for sure. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time. We could go on for quite a while. I'd love to have you back. Uh, But I just want to say I, I want to thank you for having the essential component of being a thinking human being, frankly, which is simply the courage to be an independent thinker. And uh, the country needs people to step up and uh, and challenge conventional narrative with data uh, because we really need to be a unified country. We, we, we have, uh, in my view, you know, the United States has in many ways uh, become a country where there's such vitriol there's a sort of lack of human decency out there. I think the COVID pandemic exposed it. And now uh, it's sort of pervasive in a lot of ways. So I, I think we need to keep speaking up. And I want to thank you, uh, Wilford, uh, for doing that. I hope to have you back soon. Thank you very much for being here. Great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Professor Wilford Riley, Check out his writings, particularly at Commentary Magazine and elsewhere, and his Twitter feed, which is at WillDaBeast630, at W-I-L underscore D-A underscore B-E-A-S-T 630. Don't forget to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, 
Google, and anywhere else where you listen to podcasts today. And I'll see you next time.